Let's just think for a second about how everything has changed in the last 50 years. Just think about it. Cell phones, computers, the internet. Richard Silkman thinks about this all the time. Things changed. And if you woke up Rip Van Winkle from 1965 and put him today, he wouldn't have a clue as to what our communication system does. But Silkman doesn't do communications. Silkman is in the energy business. And in the energy business, it's a different story. If you woke him up and said, and showed him the electric system, he'd recognize it immediately. <laughs> Say it's the same thing that I lived with in 1965. Yeah, it's got a few new nuclear plants, and maybe we're using a little bit more aluminum than copper, but, geez, the damn thing looks just the same. And a few years ago, Richard Silkman and some of his colleagues started a side project, trying to update our energy system for the 21st century and make it so that if Rip Van Winkle woke up and took a look around him, he'd be hard-pressed to recognize what he was seeing. But the energy horizon is foggy. So today, we're taking a deep dive into Richard Silkman's side project to find out whether we're headed for an energy revolution or whether maybe after another 50 years, Rip Van Winkle still might wake up and say, oh, this, I recognize this. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, the show about the natural world and how we use it. And I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Okay, for starters, there are some things you need to know about how the electricity gets to your house. And to explain it, I want to take you back to New York City on August 14th, 2003. I remember I was... um Working at a radio station, I was up on the 36th floor, and then suddenly the power went out. This is Maureen McMurray. She's my boss over at New Hampshire Public Radio. We went for a walk a little while ago and got to talking about that day. But I just remember the elevator stopped working. None of the traffic lights were working. The electricity was off. You know, restaurants were just trying to get rid of meats and were grilling and just, you know, trying to get rid of things. And any frozen treats they were just um, offering for free. So in New York, anyway, it was a big old party. It was super fun. I hate to be the downer here, but the restaurants that had to throw out all sorts of food probably didn't think that part was super fun. This blackout was estimated to cost between 7 and $10 billion for folks like that. But, you know, Maureen was having fun. Do you remember why it happened? Do you know anything about it? Um, Con Ed. <laughs> I have no idea. I know something like a It wasn't their no, fault. No, it was Canada. It was Canada's fault. It was something blew up in Canada. Actually, it was Ohio. And it all began because it was a very, very hot day. The story of that blackout tells us a lot about our electrical grid today, because this was what was called a cascade failure, as in a breakdown where one failure leads to another and another and another. It's kind of like a nightmare scenario for the grid. But at first, people didn't even know what was happening. No, I was in my office, and at the time I had no, no indication that, that any of this had happened. This is Jeff Daigle. I work at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in Washington State. He knows all about power outages and what causes them. But when 55 million people lost power back in 2003, he found out from his mom. So she called me up at work and, and told me that there's a blackout. Well, sometimes when she tells me it's a blackout, it's because, you know, <laughs> a squirrel took out the house or something like that. So it's like, yes, Mom, what, what, what do you see? And she's saying, well... 
looks like it's Cleveland and Detroit and Toronto and New York. <laughs> that caught my attention. <laughs> he was part of a huge team that investigated what happened that day. For starters, it was really, really hot in the 90s. And when it's hot like that, a couple of things are happening. First, everybody is running their AC, which takes a lot of power. And that power has to get to you somehow. So it goes through transmission lines. And so these overhead transmission lines, when they, when they take on more power, the current going through the wire heats the metal, and the metal expands, and the lines sag further down. And these lines, they're actually totally uninsulated, as in it's just a bare aluminum wire filled with electricity at hundreds of thousands of volts just hanging out in the open. And so they're taking on uh, more power. They're sagging down further, getting closer to the trees. And when a super high-voltage power line with no rubber around it gets too close to a tree... Zap. And in fact, it can be actually more violent than, than what you described. That's, a, that's an arc flash or, or looks like a lightning bolt, basically. On August 14th, 2003, the first power line to do this was at 2.02 p.m. in Ohio. When these lines trip, they blow big time. The voltage on the lines drops suddenly and violently to zero. The circuit breakers detect a fault and disconnect the power line. But it's what happens next that makes things start to get spicy. All of the electricity that was in that power line now needs to go somewhere. And the only place it can go is onto other power lines, which happens really fast. It's not quite the speed of light, but disturbances propagate through the grid about 1,000 miles per second. Way faster than the control room can react. So on a hot day in August, that means a bunch of extra power is now jumping over to other power lines, which are already hot and sagging down toward the trees. And then they trip. In 2003, you can see this. The first line blows at 2.02, and it takes an hour before another one overloads. 3.05, the Harding-Chamberlain 345 KV line tripped. From there, it's basically game over. The operators just didn't know it yet. 3.32, the Hannah-Jupiter line trips open. 3.41, the South Canton Star connection trips open. Right, you're, you're, you're now getting into the, the point where the system is slowly unraveling. 4.05 and 57 seconds, the Samus Star line trips over. Back in the control room, they were freaking out. You can get the transcripts of this online. Yeah, it's open. South Canton Star is open. South, okay, South Canton Star is open. Tory Cloverdale? Oh my God, look at all these open... We have, we have more trouble, more things are tripping. East Lima and New Liberty tripped out. Look at that. And then... By 4.13, it's over. The blackout knocked out power to something like 55 million people and cut off 500-something power plants. It spread all the way from Ohio west to Ontario and east to New York City, where my boss Maureen had a really fun night, even though there's no power. I drink, and I just remember waking up so hungover without air conditioning. And the water wasn't running, and there was only whiskey to drink. And I was like, oh, God. That's what I remember. (laughs) Okay, so what does this all have to do with Richard Silkman's side project? You still remember Richard Silkman, right? Jeez, the damn thing looks just the same. The government got pretty freaked out by the 2003 blackout. And they're now demanding that all of that old-school infrastructure that's out on your street today 
be ready to handle a heat wave where a couple of power plants go offline and transmission lines start to follow. Utilities, and by that I mean your local power company, are planning to double down on a lot of that same old Rip Van Winkle technology. You can look almost anywhere in the country and find plans to replace transmission lines with thicker wires, to tear down utility poles and put up taller ones so we can string higher voltage power lines, or plans to build brand new transmission lines next to the old ones so that if one fails, you've still got another. And this is going to be crazy expensive. Just in New England alone, they're talking about spending $5 billion. And that's just on the transmission and distribution side of things. And this is where Richard Silkman and his side project come in. I could start. I have a PhD in economics. The next part of the story takes place in Maine. That's where Silkman co-owns a company called Competitive Energy Services. If you are a business that needs to figure out how to navigate energy markets, his company is kind of like your energy fixer. They know all the rules, they know all the players, and they can get you what you need. So back in 2008, he's sitting in a meeting and listening to the state's biggest electric company, Central Maine Power, talking about their plan to make sure that nothing like the 2003 blackout ever happens again. And as you might guess, that plan looked pretty conventional. Thicker wires, taller poles, more transmission lines. Their solution, just for the state of Maine, was going to cost something like a billion and a half dollars. The time I was sitting in the meeting and I remember thinking, boy, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Why build something that's going to be ready to go 365 days of the year when... It was only going to be needed on, you know, maybe a dozen of the hottest days of the year in July and August. So Silkman and his partner proposed another idea. What if instead of building more expensive power lines, we fundamentally change the way we think about the grid? The utility was dubious, but on the other hand, Mainers wouldn't be psyched about a billion-dollar electric bill either. So Silkman was given a chance to try out his ideas. And that's Booth Bay, Rich Silkman's side project. Booth Bay is like a lot of other little towns in coastal Maine. It used to be a fishing port, and over the years it's become a tourist destination. The town itself is all the way down at the end of a peninsula. And it's got lots of little t-shirt shops and art galleries tons of art galleries. Geographically, Booth Bay is a perfect place for an experiment like this because all the electricity for the town comes from a single power line that runs all the way down the peninsula. In the winter, there's no problem. Not many people are in town, things are quiet, but in summer... The streets are hopping, the restaurants are busy, the bars are full. The power line starts to get maxed out. Everybody's running the AC. You've got the T-shirt tourist trap running the AC at full blast with the doors wide open and people coming in and out. This is Steve Hinchman, by the way. He was the guy in charge of making the Booth Bay experiment happen. So the first thing they did was go all over town. Hi, Andrew Gleason. Nice to meet you. Your name's on the front. Yeah, exactly. I'm the son of the owner's city gallery. And remember, there are a ton of little art galleries in this town. We have a lot of light bulbs. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And hand out free LED light bulbs. The goal was to get rid of every old inefficient bulb in town, which worked pretty well. Sure. Well, for one thing, uh, they don't give off any heat like the halogens did. So our heating bill and stuff like that has gone way down and, uh, you know, we don't have to use air conditioning as much, which is nice. Who's going to say no to a free light bulb? Step two, solar panels. Everywhere. 
So this is producing um, this 8.1, yeah. So you're looking at 24 kW right there. There are panels on the roof of the fire department, the YMCA, the town's public works buildings, hotels, homes. In all, enough panels to power somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 homes. And they also paid people extra to point their solar panels west, so they'd be generating the most in the early afternoon, the time when the stress on the power line is greatest. We're preemptively lowering the load on the power lines because we're displacing power that would be imported from away with power made right here in the region. Then we start to get to the exotic stuff. They installed three shipping containers wired up as giant batteries, which could be used to shift demand away from the hottest parts of the day. And they went around to grocery stores and banks and put in air conditioning units, which instead of creating cold air and sucking tons of power 24-7, these AC units make ice at night and just blow a fan over the ice during the hot afternoons that are so tough on the power lines. But they also put in a really old-school solution, too. What, what's this? Who are you? I'm Mike Elkins. Um, we build furniture. So how did you get involved with this? Uh, furniture? Or the... <laughs> the generator. <laughs> the short story is Steve said, hey, Mike, do you have a place where we can set a small generator? They put in a standard diesel generator. It's kind of a fallback. We're the resource of last resort. So when you opened your furniture making shop, did you anticipate that you'd be getting into the power plant business? I did not know we would be an energy company. <laughs> that was news. Rich Silkman's side project wasn't a single piece of revolutionary technology. It was a whole bunch of small solutions designed to lower the strain on the power line. If that doesn't sound very impressive, think about the price tag. It was estimated the new power line was going to cost $18 million. Their project, the light bulbs, the solar panels, the batteries, the fancy AC units, the generator, all told only cost $6 million, less than half as expensive. The reason that I wanted to do a story about Booth Bay is that I think what you're seeing here is the emergence of something that we've talked about for a really long time, something called the smart grid. And, you know, we talked about how the technology of the grid hasn't changed much in the last 50 or 60 years, how it's still what you might call hub and spoke. In the middle of the hub, you've got this giant frickin' power plant, and out at the end of the spoke is us. And they're just pumping that electricity out, meeting whatever demand there is out there. But there's very little in the way of visibility very little communication. Think about this. If the power goes out in 2016, in the service territory of most utilities, you have to actually call the power company to let them know something's wrong. Otherwise, they would have no idea. So this is really not a very 21st century system. But if you ask smart people who think about this stuff to predict 100 years from now what things will look like on the electric grid, you'll hear about a grid where both communication and energy are actually starting to flow two ways. 
But generally speaking, you know, the ideal world would be you would have solar PV, you would have a battery, you would have, you know, a, what they call a smart thermostat. You might even have smart appliances, you know, like a washer and dryer that won't work if the power reaches a certain point, you know. So all of this sort of intelligence, I guess you could say, it could even be run from your iPhone. This is Peter Asmus, an analyst with Navigant Research. You would get a signal from either the utility or one of these grid operators, hey, we need resources today. We need it in, we need it an hour from now. And you would have automated programs that say, okay, we're going to dial back your air conditioning five degrees. You might not even notice it, but if 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 20,000 homes all do that, that creates a certain amount of, of real impact on the system. And this is what's called a virtual power plant. It's big because if this works, and works on a big scale, it means you can avoid investing in transmission lines, and it could save a ton of money. But also, this could help us transition to renewables. That's because a big knock on renewables has been that they go when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing and can't be ramped up or down to match demand. But with smart technologies, you can start to reshape demand to meet the supply. And this, this is not just a physical change to the infrastructure, it's also a cultural shift. As power customers, we're used to the power company just saying, you do you. We'll figure out how to get the energy to you. But this change is very much like, we're going to invite you inside of the decisions we make every day to power your life. And we're going to ask you for your help in making those decisions. It would be so, so different. So the question I'm sure you're asking yourself right now is, why isn't this happening in more places? Okay, stay with me. First, you've got to understand a little bit about how the actual business of energy works. Here in New England, at least, private companies own all of the power plants. They make money by selling power in these blind auctions on a daily basis. And also they and unfinished power plants can get paid at an annual auction by selling kind of a promise that they will be online and available three years ahead of time. But all that power, regardless of which power plants win the auctions, which companies supply the consumers, has to go through power lines, which are built and maintained by your local electric utility. And no matter what happens at the energy auctions, the utilities are legally obligated to deliver it to us and make sure the power doesn't go out for stupid reasons. So they build whatever new transmission lines are determined to be necessary by something called an independent system operator. And in a very non-market-based way, they get paid back for whatever they spend. And the cost gets split by everyone in the whole region. And all of this is regulated by this Byzantine web of federal and regional and state bureaucracies. The FERC, the NERC, the ISOs, the PUCs. <sighs> so basically, all of this is obnoxiously complicated. But it all kind of boils down to this. The way the regulations and the markets are designed right now makes it really hard for anyone to make money building projects like Booth Bay. In fact, there might actually be incentives in this system for companies to build more expensive projects because then they get paid more. And what makes this particularly disappointing is that we have this whole system of regulators, this maze of regulators, and they basically have one job which is to make sure that the lights come on when we flick the switch and that we aren't paying too much. And so I just want to bring in 
one more voice here. This is Ken Colburn, who's part of the Regulatory Assistance Project, which is this kind of quiet nonprofit whose job is to support public utilities commissioners, which are the state-level electricity regulators. Public utility commissioners have at the root of their public responsibility to make sure that there's no undue discrimination and that rates are just and reasonable. And so this kind of raises the question, does a path that creates a higher cost solution with greater environmental harms, can it possibly be just and reasonable to the public ratepayers? Well, I got to say, it sounds like the answer is no, that it's not just and reasonable. I would have to agree. So if Rip Van Winkle were to wake up in another 50 years and find that the grid still looked pretty much the same as today, I guess the question we'd have to be asking ourselves is not, does this still work? But instead, is this the best we can do? Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Maureen McMurray, and Taylor Quimby, with help from Logan Shannon and Molly Donahue. The voice actors playing the freaked-out grid control operators were our colleagues here at NHPR, Jack Rodolico and Logan Shannon. And I have a lot of people to thank today. For starters, everyone you heard in the story today probably had some sort of really long conversation with me. But then there were all sorts of other long conversations that didn't even make it into the beats. So thanks to Chris Reccia from the Vermont Public Service Board, to Steve Rourke from ISO New England, Jim Giottis and Brian Bentley of Eversource, Shelley Walton, who's a PhD candidate at Yale, and Rich Sedano, who's with the Regulatory Assistance Project. Our theme is composed by Breakmaster Cylinder, and our website where you can see photos of Booth Bay as well as lots of interesting links to read more about this topic is OutsideInRadio.com. We tweet at OutsideInRadio, and we're on the Facebook and the Instagram, which is where we post all sorts of photos as we're going around reporting these stories. Outside In is a product of New Hampshire Public Radio. See you next time. <laughs>